Yeah. So for those of you who, who don't know, the old kid is my son. And I love to mow the yard. I mean, I just do. Like, I, told Dan, I mowed the yard Friday, and I told Danielle, sitting during the first service, I'm going to mow the yard tonight because I would just like the lines to look different tomorrow than they do. Like, I just love to mow the yard. Do you want the backstory? It's going to take two extra minutes. So w- when you're a youth pastor, like in, in the late 90s and early 2000s, we had a culture where, where like as a teenager, you would bring your youth pastor your bad stuff. You're like, you remember that? Like when you would like bring your, your like tapes and your CDs and like your stuff that you weren't supposed to listen to, like to the altar. So with this culture, like where kids, where kids wanted to get right with Jesus, they would like, give me their stuff. So had a kid who I was eating with one night. Uh, we were sitting in my driveway at my house. And he said, like, I need to give you something to hold me back spiritually. And I'm like, all right. And he handed me two, um, like, Kodak film canisters. You remember older people, like, the Kodak film canisters? Too low? And I was like, what's this? And I opened it up, and he's like, don't spill it. And I, opened it, I was like, what's that? And he's like, that's my pot. Um, so I had these two little Kodak canisters filled with, like, mar- one had, like, marijuana you could smoke, and one had, like, marijuana seeds. And I was like, I don't want this. So I, I took the tops off, and I just threw them into the grass into my yard. And as we're talking, the sprinklers come on, and he says, oh, no. And I said, what? And he said, you're going to grow a bunch of pot in your front yard. So that summer, like every three days, I mowed the grass. And it was the most relaxing experience of my life. It was like, that's a true story. It's like, I love to mow the grass. So now I mow the grass all the time, and I don't think I've got any marijuana planted anywhere on my property um, that I am aware of. Uh, happy Father's Day to those of you in the house. Dads and grandpas, we're really, really glad that you're here. So I learned over a decade in youth ministry, about 25 years of ministry in total, that one of the most helpful things to someone's spiritual walk is having a great dad. Um, there's just something different about the heart shape of a person towards Jesus when they've been raised with a great dad who's safe. Uh, I've found that people who have a spiritual father, for those of you in here, like, and maybe your dad is also your spiritual father, but uh, people who I've met who have spiritual fathers, like, they just very rarely ever stray from Jesus because they're so connected to someone who's like Jesus. If you have a great dad or you have a spiritual father, man, please reach out to them today. However, I've also learned that probably the greatest hurdle that anyone ever has to overcome in their faith journey is having a a negative relationship with their father or no relationship with their father. Um, I have found that that births in someone um, the thought that it is unsafe to have authority in your life um, because they may abandon you, they may not be there for you. And I have found people who have what I would call and what psychology calls an orphaned spirit because they were raised without a dad and they just really have trouble leaning in to who Jesus is because they've got this wound in their heart. If that's you, I want you to know I'm praying for you today. And if you have a father wound today because you've lost your dad or because you're a dad separated from your kids, had an opportunity after the first service to pray down at the altar with one of our young dads who hasn't seen his three kids in eight years and probably won't until they're 18 and choose to reach out to him. Um, And he was brokenhearted. I got a chance to interact with a mom and her two daughters who's going through a terrible divorce, um, and the pain in her eyes. 
um, on Father's Day, she processes what life is going to look like for her and her girls. Um, if that's your story, I want you to know we're praying for you. Kristen, I look down here at you, who I know has lost your dad in the past year. Um, I had a chance to pray with my assistant, Michelle, whose dad died in January. I've had an, a chance to interact all morning long with my mom. My grandfather died. This is her first Father's Day without her dad. If that's you, we just want you to know we're here for you. We see you. Um, we love you. I lunch with uh, one of our men on Monday who told me the story um, of his past. He and his father for 25 years estranged, and then God brought them back together. If you're a dad who hasn't seen your kids in a long, long time, just start praying. Just start praying that God would restore that relationship, and don't stop praying until it happens or you're in heaven with your heavenly father. Um, and if you're a child who's estranged from your dad, start praying today that God would restore that relationship. And just don't stop praying until it happens or you're with your heavenly father in heaven. At the end of our services, we'll have our prayer team kind of all over the place. Uh, Our spiritual care room will be open in our prayer room. If you need more ministry today than just sitting in a seat hearing a message, please let us know. It'd be our absolute honor to pray with you, pray for you. We always start these days um, by just praying for people who are in the house and those who are watching online. So would you just bow your heads with me briefly before we begin our Bible study time? Kind of take a deep breath and settle your soul into this moment. This is the moment in the service where hopefully we stop listening in our flesh and we start listening with our spirit to what God is saying to us. And just ask God to speak to your heart and minister to your heart the way you need to hear and be ministered to today. Dads and grandpas estranged from your kids, would you just pray that a good God would restore that relationship in time? Kids estranged from your dad of all ages. Would you pray that God may, in his grace, restore that relationship in his timing? And those who have lost a father, would you just pray that God would comfort your heart as only God the Father could do? Jesus, thank you for the father heart of God. And for those of us who have had unbelievable experiences with our dad that allows us to lean in and trust, we thank you. For those of us who have had terrible experiences with an earthly father, do something in our heart that would allow us to overcome that experience so we might trust you. And God, in today's message, we pray that you may allow us to see how Jesus approaches us and allow us to see how we might live in faith by getting out of the boat when you call us to do great things for you. That's our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name today, and everyone said, amen. Matthew chapter 14 is where we're going to hang out in our Bible study time today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Grab your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along. Um, If you're brand new to Journey, didn't bring a Bible, no big deal. Everything we read from Scripture will be on the screen behind me. be very easy to follow along. If you have a smartphone, you can download the Bible app, which will make it really easy to follow along, or download our Journey Church International app, which you actually will put in your phone everything that's in your bulletin, make it really simple to follow along. Um, We're in the midst of a 17-week series called The Kingdom, where we are trying to learn about the kingdom of God and live in the kingdom of God and think like kingdom of God people. We spent five weeks learning about the foundations of the kingdom of God, and now we're, this is the third week of six where we'll learn about kingdom citizens. We're trying to find people who lived in the kingdom of God. We're trying to kind of reverse engineer their spiritual DNA and see what we can learn from them. The first of those was John the Baptist. And as we reverse engineer John the Baptist's spiritual DNA, we learn that kingdom citizens live with a courage and a conviction 
that comes from this like spiritual calling. We've got this holy purpose from God to help people see Jesus so clearly that when they meet us, they either receive him or reject him, but they can't act like they don't know him anymore. Uh, Last week, we looked at the 12 disciples as Jesus fed 5,000 people, and we learned about compassionate generosity. We learned that kingdom citizens live with a compassion that moves them to live generously in a way that builds our faith. Every time we give, it always impacts our faith more than it impacts somebody else. But it also impacts Jesus and what he's doing in his mission in the world. Today, we're going to look at one of those 12, the captain of the disciples, if you would say. His name is the Apostle Peter. And what we're going to learn from Peter today is we're going to learn how to live in faith. We're going to learn how to hopefully see Jesus every day in our stories. And hopefully we're going to learn for some of us to have longer faith and bigger faith as we walk through this season in our life. Matthew 14 is going to be our guidebook today. We'll start in verse 22. Last week, Jesus taught the disciples compassionate generosity as they fed the masses. It says in verse 22, immediately... After feeding the 5,000, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's me. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come on, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when he climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Now, here's what's interesting about today's text and today's message. Even though we are in a series on kingdom citizens profiling kingdom people, and even though today is about the Apostle Peter, Matthew did not write this text to teach us about the Apostle Peter. This is not a story about Peter. It's a story about Jesus. And the primary point of this story that Matthew wants you to learn is not that Jesus can walk on water. While that is a big deal, he has never done it before this. He doesn't do it after this. Like, the point of the story is not to introduce you to Peter. And the point of you knowing Jesus is not to know that he can walk on water. There's something much, much deeper going on that Matthew wants you to know. And as we look at this today, I need you to understand that Matthew is giving us, number one, what I just call a snapshot of the gospel. Matthew is not just teaching us about Jesus. He's teaching us about the mission of Jesus. And it's very, very important. And it's so much bigger than Jesus being able to walk on water or Peter's faith, although those are a big part of today's stories. If I could give you what I would call a technical thought spiritually and then a theological thought spiritually, I would say that as you read scripture, like you should never pick up the Bible and read it without looking for four specific things. I would just call these like the instruction and the insight on how to read your Bible and the level spiritually of education that you can get out of the Bible. Like every time you pick up your Bible and read it, you should be looking for four things. Number one, information. 
What can I learn that I never knew before? Um, number two, inspiration. I'm going to read something that's going to move my soul. Level three would be illumination. The Holy Spirit shows me something from the Bible that directly correlates to my life. And the last level would be incarnation. I read scripture and I see Jesus or I see the work of Jesus. But listen, this does not stop with Bible reading. You could do this at the end of every day. You could sit with your kids for those of you who have kids that you tuck into bed. And every day you could have this conversation. What did you learn that you never knew before? What happened that moved your spirit today? Where do you think the Holy Spirit spoke to you? And what happened that allowed you to see Jesus? Or why it's so important that people know Jesus? Like These four levels of processing are how kingdom citizens live their life every day. They're always not just looking to learn, but they're listening for the Holy Spirit, and they want to see Jesus. Letter D, when I say a snapshot of the gospel, the gospel is letter D. It's seeing Jesus clearly and the work of Jesus clearly. There is a movement in churches today that makes the gospel a really, really big deal. As a matter of fact, when you go into churches, you might hear the word gospel so much that like if it were like the key word of a drinking game, the communion wine would be gone before the service were over. Because like they say gospel 728 times. Presbyterians and Lutherans thought that was hilarious. Catholics and Baptists are a little unsettled. <laughs> I would ask you Catholics and Baptists, when have you ever agreed on anything? Like it was a joke, so just like relax and lighten up. Sometimes you go to church and it's like, gospel, gospel, gospel. I was like, what does that even mean? You need to understand what the gospel is. So like, like, what is the gospel? Let me give you seven elements of the gospel. Seven elements of the story of Jesus in our lives and in the world. What are they? Let's throw them on the screen and look at them. These are the themes of scripture. And these are the themes of every day of your life. The first kind of element, key element of the gospel is that a good and powerful God created the world and he desires to live in relationship with the people he created and he created like a world that would serve us this is the theme of all 66 books of the bible that there is a god who knows you created you loves you and is pursuing you and he wants to move heaven and earth so that you might know him this is the theme of the bible if you've not read the whole thing through Number two, unfortunately, there's a separation between God and his people because of sin. We read that when the first people, Adam and Eve, sinned, their sin was covered, but that covering put a separation between them and God. It was as thin as an animal skin, but what it took to cover their sin separated them from the flesh-to-flesh -flesh intimacy that they used to have with the creator God of heaven. It would be that same very, very thin layer of animal skin on the bottom of Moses' feet as a piece of leather that God would say to Moses, take that off because I want you to come into direct contact with me where you're standing is holy ground. See, one of the elements of the gospel is God created you, knows you, loves you, but because of sin, you're separated. But number three, a move from God towards his people who cannot move towards him through a praying mediator always happens in Scripture. Adam sinned and hid, God moved towards him. Noah lived in such a sinful generation that he did not ask God, what are we going to do here? God moved towards him and said, here's what we'll do here. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, David. We see God in scripture always moving towards people. 
and having a mediator that can connect them. This was kingdom citizen John the Baptist, kingdom citizen number one John the Baptist. This was his message to the world. The kingdom is coming. God is moving towards you. And his mediator is going to connect you to him. Number four is so critical. One of the elements of the gospel is that you need an invitation from God's Savior to move towards him for spiritual rescue. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, You don't wake up one day and decide that you want God. Unless God draws you, no one comes to the Father. So if you're here today and you've even got an inkling that there's a God in heaven that you're interested in, that was not your idea. That was the God of heaven drawing your heart, inviting you closer. It's a key element of the gospel. We learn that once people are rescued spiritually, they need, number five, a personal dependence on God's Savior so that they can walk in faith. You can't do it without daily connection to Jesus. Ephesians 2.8 says we're saved by grace. It's a gift through faith. It's not anything that we do, but God has things for us to do. He has a purpose for our life. In Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says every day we wake up trying to figure out if we're going to live for ourselves or live for God, and we need dependence on God's Spirit to help us do that. Number six says the people who are connected daily to who God is will have the peace of God invading their hearts even among the storms of life. It's why we heard Jesus say, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, come to me. I'll give you rest. You'll be safe with me. That's why in John 10, 10, Jesus says, I not only want to give you life, but I want to give you the best life. It's why in John 16, 33, Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have trouble, but you've got me. I've overcome the world. You're going to be okay. And then in number seven, the gospel always ends with the confession of our soul that Jesus truly is the son of God and he deserves our worship and he deserves our allegiance. In the book of Matthew, God has called Jesus his son. In the book of Matthew, Satan has called Jesus God's son. When he would cast out demons, the demons would say, we know who you are, the son of God. But no human being yet in the book of Matthew has called Jesus God's son until Jesus walked on water, got in the boat, and the disciples said, holy cow, this is the son of God. God called him the son of God. Satan called him the son of God. Spiritual people called him the son of God. On the cross, a sinner to his right or left would call him the son of God. And a skeptic centurion at his feet when he watched him die would call him the son of God. Philippians 2 says one day, every tongue will confess that Jesus is the son of God. Amen? Like, I wish we were there now. We're not. But these are the elements, like, this is the story of the Bible. And when we enter Matthew chapter 14, I'm not sure if you see it or not, but all Matthew's doing is giving us a snapshot of how God works in the world. We see Jesus in last week's message, a good and powerful God who desires to live in relationship with people and creates a world to serve them. Seeing needy people and taking the resources that the earth has given him, bread and fish, and providing for people so that they might see that he is the God of the universe. But when we open today's text, God, Jesus, is separated from his people. He's on the mountain praying. They're in a boat, and not only are they in a boat, they're in a boat in a storm, and they're in a boat in a storm where the wind is blowing them away from Jesus, not towards Jesus. If number three didn't happen, Jesus and the disciples would have never been reunited. Jesus knew the disciples could never work their way towards him, so he walked his way towards them, amen? That's how we connect with Jesus. And as he walked his way towards them, he very specifically, number four, called Peter to him personally. Peter, come to me. And as Peter tried to walk towards Jesus, he began to sink in his own power. So he said, Jesus, you're going to have to help me as I keep walking. And Jesus didn't just reach down and save him, but he got in the boat. And when he got in the boat, the peace of the storm on the outside went away. And the peace of the calm inside heart came to the disciples. And number seven, they worshiped. And they said, truly, this is the Son of God. 
Like, please don't think this story is for us to all know the answer to the trivia question, who can walk on water? Okay, Jesus can't. Not the point. Who else walked on water? Peter did. Not the point. The point of this is Jesus and his work in the world. And what you need to know is like, when you really understand Matthew chapter 14, the story of Jesus walking on the water is a really good way to share your testimony of what God has done in your soul and what God has done in your life. Because it is all of our stories. At some point in our life, our salvation story begins with us in a boat, in a storm, not really knowing which direction is up and which direction is down. And then we don't find God, God finds us. And all of a sudden, he has walked right into our storm, and he has rescued us and delivered us. But it's not just the story of our salvation. It's the story of our today. Some of you today are in a boat in a storm, and you are rowing against the wind, and you are unsure how you're going to get out of it. And the answer, according to the gospel today, is open your eyes. God, through Jesus, is moving towards you. He's coming. He always comes. Broken people and broken situations and broken life disconnects us from God, but God is always moving towards us. And when we see him and we answer his call to come to him and we do things his way, there is a peace on the inside and a worship on the outside. Like the gospel is not just for your salvation. It's for every day of your life to remember all the time, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And if I will answer his call and what he's asking me to do, and if I will be faithful, I'm not sure what the storm on the outside will look like, but the inside will be calm and my life will be able to worship. That's a snapshot of the gospel. And that's like really the whole point of this message, a snapshot of the gospel. But Jesus also walked on water, and so did Peter. That's a pretty big deal. So we should go ahead and look at that as we're trying to look at people who would inspire our faith. Peter's probably a good one today. So if number one is a snapshot of the gospel, number two is going to be a picture of faith. It's going to be a picture of really, really big faith. Because Jesus is not the only human being that ever walked on water, according to today's text. The apostle Peter did as well. Look at verse 28. Jesus comes walking on the water. He's like, they're like, it's a ghost. And he's like, don't freak out, it's me. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come on, he said. And Peter got down out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came towards Jesus. I remember the first time I was on the Sea of Galilee, five, seven years ago. We had a very early morning boat ride. We met the boat at Tiberias, so we were going the opposite way from Tiberias to Capernaum that the disciples were traveling in the story. And it just felt biblical. Uh, Because as we were waiting, kind of like at sunrise, a little bit of mist still coming off the Sea of Galilee, sun setting, sun rising over the Golan Heights. Like as we're boarding our boat, the fishermen who have been out all night are coming into port and literally they dock their very small little fishing boat right by the boat we're on and they're pulling their nets up. And I'm like, holy cow, this looks like right out of the pages of the Bible. Except they were both smoking, which is kind of weird. I thought, okay, like I'm not, it may... Peter probably smoked every now and then, but the rest of them probably, like, probably not. It was like, other than the cigarettes hanging out of their mouth, this feels like right out of the Bible. And then we start our trek across the Sea of Galilee. I'm telling you, it's crystal clear. There wasn't a wave. There was no wind. It was beautiful. And as I leaned over the boat and I watched the water pass, I just thought, man, I wonder if it would still hold me today. <laughs> and God said, no, idiot. God calls me idiot sometimes. I'm not offended because I know he loves me. No idiot. 
The waters never held anyone. The water is not what held Peter. His faith is what held him. You're asking the wrong question. The question is not, will the water hold me? Christian, the question is, will your faith hold you? And the answer right now, in case you're wondering, is no. Peter's faith in this story was so supersized. It's not the main point of the text, but I hope you please don't miss the heart of Peter. As we watch Peter's movement towards Jesus and we see Jesus' permission to allow it, what we see is the heart of Peter. And what we see in the heart of Peter is that Peter felt safer in the storm with Jesus than he did in the boat without Jesus. And some of us have not yet taken that step spiritually. Because where Jesus is calling us to seems unsafe. It seems a little scary. It seems like the psalm says, like, like, like the song says, like a place without borders, like where, where we might fall, the water's a little deeper. And it's interesting here because I don't think Peter's goal was to walk on the water. I think if Peter would have said, oh, ooh, can I try that? Jesus would have said, stay in the boat. Remember, he called Peter Satan. He was not against correcting him when he was wrong. I don't think Peter wanted to walk on the water. I think Peter was afraid of not being close to Jesus. I think Peter's greatest fear was being separated from Jesus. And he's like, I have to get closer to you. I have to get closer to you. And I'd rather be with you in the storm than in the boat by myself. Warren Wearsby, who's one of my favorite authors, I'm reading a Psalms devotional this year by him says that Christians need to become spiritual meteorologists. Because he said, we can read the storms in life. And he said, every storm that comes into our life is either a storm of correction or it's a storm of perfection. You say, what do you mean by that? Wearsby says that every time we experience a storm in our life, we should stop and say, okay, is God trying to get my attention because I'm doing something wrong? Am I off course in this storm? Is God sending a storm of correction to blow my life back onto the course that he set for me because he said go right and I went left instead. He said you need to learn in the storms. Is it a storm of correction or a storm of perfection? A storm of perfection is this. God wants to do something in your spirit that can only happen through trial, through pain, through suffering. So God's looking at you and saying for you to be more perfect spiritually, for you to be more like Jesus, you're going to have to go through some intense times. So I'm going to allow a storm of perfection to come into your life because at the end of it, you're going to be so much more like Jesus, so much more useful to Jesus. Some of you in storms right now are in storms of correction. You're off course. Jesus is trying to blow you back. It's very uncomfortable, but it's for a good reason. Some of you are in a storm of perfection. It's very uncomfortable. But there's purpose to it. Notice those storms of correction, storms of perfection, they both want to serve the same purpose. They, they both want to push you towards Jesus. And I think it's really important that when we're in storms of life and everything seems rocky, we need to make sure that we're asking the right spiritual question. Because in the storms, there's a wrong question to ask and there's a right question to ask. When you're in a storm, stop asking, how can I get out of this? And stop asking, what can I get out of this? Stop asking, how can I get out of this? Start asking, what can I get out of this? How, how could God use this pain, this tension, this pressure, this stress, this suffering, this sorrow? Not how do I get out of this, but what can I get out of this? 
How can't? Remember our four lenses. What can I learn? How can I be inspired? What is Jesus trying to show me? How can I see him more clearly? What can I get out of what I'm going through that'll show me something about Jesus, something about what Jesus is doing, or something that Jesus wants in me? We've got to make sure and ask the right questions spiritually. So Peter races towards Jesus because he'd rather be in the storm with Jesus than in the boat by himself. That's the purpose of the storm, to push him towards Jesus. In John chapter 6, the purpose of the storm was a storm of perfection. John chapter 6 is a parallel to Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus feeds the 5,000, sends his disciples away on the boat, walks on the water. But we find a little more detail in John chapter 6. We find out that after Jesus fed the people, the people wanted to make him king by force because he wanted them to be their king who did what they wanted. And Jesus is like, that's not how I work. So he sent all the people who were on the shore, people who wanted Jesus to be their king their way and to do what they wanted. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he sent them all one way on the shore. And he took his disciples and said, it'd be dangerous for you to be with people who want to make me their king their way. So I'm going to send you on the boat. He knew the storm was coming. Because he's God, he understood what the tension would look like. But he knew it would be safer for you to see who I really am and to know how to worship me than to try to create in me what you think you need or what you desire most. So he sends them into this storm of perfection and Peter understands the only answer in a storm is to race towards Jesus. So he races towards Jesus and look what happens in verse 30 and 31. He's walking on the water, but when he saw the wind, I'd underline those words, we'll come back to that phrase. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. You have little faith. You might underline or circle those two words. We'll talk about those. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? So Peter was sinking, sinking quick. Think about it for a minute. Can you imagine how it might feel to go swimming in a dress covered by a robe, covered by a coat that all came down to your ankles? Be a pretty uncomfortable, like, little get up to swim in, right? But that's how Peter was dressed. I was hanging out with some friends in college one night at a, at a mutual friend's house, um, and we were all hanging out around a pool, but nobody was swimming in the pool, um, and I thought, I might like to go swimming, and so I thought, I'm just going to bounce on the diving board and, and see like, if anyone's willing to open the pool, because the pool cover was on the pool. So I walked to the end of the diving board, and I very quickly realized why the pool cover was on the pool, because the diving board was broke, and when I got to the end of it, um, just like, like getting hit like, in a, like a dunk machine, literally when I hit the end of the diving board, boom, boom, I went straight into the pool. And when I twisted, literally the pool cover wrapped itself around my shoulders, arms, and head, and I began to sink with this fabric covered around me like I was in a cocoon, and I freaked out. Because I thought, I am going to drown. To the point where I ripped their pool cover to shreds, trying to get my head above water. They all thought it was the funniest thing I had ever, they had ever seen. But I had never come so close to thinking, holy cow, I'm going to die. You have to understand, that's what Peter felt like. In, in clothes that were a dress, covered by a robe, covered by a coat, soaking wet. He was being pulled to the depths of the Sea of Galilee. And you can imagine his scream, his utterance for help. Please help me. In John chapter 21, we read how fishermen get in the lake. They take their clothes off first. 
read in John 21 that Peter was 100 yards from shore when he saw Jesus on the lake. And it said he took off all of his outer tunics and then he jumped in so that he could swim. Peter is drowning. He's being pulled down by the weight of everything that he's wearing. He reaches up and he's like, Jesus, help. And Jesus reaches down and grabs him. What happened? Well, first he saw the wind. But here's what I want to say about seeing the wind. You can't actually see the wind. You can only see the results of the wind. So Peter saw the result of the wind. See, why is that important? In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a discussion with a spiritual leader whose name is Nicodemus. And he said, I don't understand how spiritual things work. And Jesus said, they work like the wind. You can't see where it's coming or where it's going or where it started or where it ends, but you see the results of it. Faith is the same way. You can only see spiritually like you see the wind. Like you never really see spiritual things. You only see the result of spiritual things. So Peter had to figure out whether he was going to look at the results of the wind or whether he was going to look at the results of the Savior. And it says he doubted. The Greek word is distazo, which literally means to see two things. Peter wanted to walk towards Jesus while basing his decisions on the circumstances around him rather than the Savior in front of him. Let me say it again because some of you are on that journey. You're trying to figure out why you're sinking. Your goal in life is to walk towards Jesus. But you're making all of your decisions based on the circumstances of what is happening around you, not the Savior who's in front of you. You're doubting, distazo. It's not that you doubt Jesus. You're just trying to see two things at once. I'm trying to walk towards the Savior. I'm trying to make decisions based on my circumstance. And as Peter begins to fall, Jesus reaches down and grabs him and says, Peter, you have little faith. Fascinating Greek word. It's the Greek word oligos. And it literally means short in time or brief in duration. It doesn't mean small faith. It means short faith. It literally means your faith needed to last five seconds and it only lasted three. He basically said, Peter, why would you give up so fast? Oligos, little faith. You started well, you quit too fast. And folks, I don't know about you, but every time Jesus has called me to walk towards him in faith, And I begin to make decisions based on circumstances rather than the Savior. I'm really tempted to not finish what God called me to do in faith. It's not that my faith isn't real. It's not that my faith isn't small. It's just not very long. It just doesn't last long enough to finish everything that God wants me to do. I think too often in faith we begin to move forward and then something goes wrong and we quit really, really fast. Instead of leaning into Jesus harder... We quit really, really quick. Our faith is just like so short span. And what if as a people, instead of quitting fast, we started fasting quick? You say, what do you mean by that? What if when circumstances started to look off, what if instead of quitting fast, we would go into a time of prayer and fasting and Bible study and reading? What if when circumstances seemed off, we focused more on the Savior, not less? And we said, I'm not going to quit fast. I'm going to fast quick. I'm going to lean in harder as soon as I begin to doubt what God is calling me to do. A couple weeks ago, I read a leadership book by a pastor named Wayne Cordero. He pastors in Hawaii. He's one of my favorite authors. And he was talking about leadership pain and discipleship pain and why so many people begin things spiritually that they don't finish. And I'm going to share a quote with you that you need to pull out your phone and take a picture of because I didn't put it on your notes, but I think it's really critical, especially after the last two and a half years. Throw it up on the screen. Here's what Cordo says. He said, it's not the depth of our pain that ultimately leads us to quit. It's the length of it. 
It's not the depth of it. We're really good at going through really hard things. But man, after a month, after a year, after two and a half years of COVID, it's not going to get any more painful. But we're just really weary. It's not the depth of pain that causes most Christians to quit spiritually. It's the length of it. Of little faith. It just doesn't last long enough for them. Are you today considering quitting? Not because the pain is getting worse, but because it's just still there. And it's just been too long. And you need to transition. You know, I was raised uh, in the 90s, mid-90s, graduated high school, late 90s, was in college. Which means I was around when Jeff Foxworthy created the You Might Be a Redneck If series of comedy tours that he went on. It actually is what taught me that I was a redneck. I did not know until Jeff Foxworthy gave me the list that I was a redneck. Um, and I was probably 85% redneck. And I had some friends that were 110% redneck. So I thought, like, I might be, yep, yep, that's me. I'm, I, I, am, I am a redneck. Um, you need to understand, you will not be able to live in faith. You will not be able to live in faith if, um, if, number one, you're constantly making decisions based on circumstances rather than the Savior. You will not live in faith if you do that. You will not live in faith if you hear from God and then you go get your business ledger out and say, okay, how are these two things going to work? You will not live in faith if you constantly look at circumstances rather than the Savior. You will not live in faith if you see the wind rather than worship the Savior. Can't do it. You, you will not live in faith if you constantly have a plan B just in case the spiritual thing fails. You won't live in faith. You'll quit before you get to the point that teaches you faith. You will not live in faith if you'll walk towards Jesus while, while always... He, here's what this would look like. This would look like Jesus saying, get out of the boat, and you're like, heck yeah, I'll get out of the boat. And then you tie a rope around your waist and you anchor it to the boat and you start walking towards Jesus. I'm going to walk, but I'm also going to make sure I'm okay just in case it doesn't work out. Jesus is like, take off the swimmies and walk towards me on the water. There's a lot of Christians running around with, they don't wear swimmies anymore. They're like full body flotation devices. Have you seen the kids hanging out at the pool? They look like little dorks, but they're safe. It's like, they all look like they're wearing like the Halloween muscle costume. Like, what is that? And they're like, you just throw a kid literally in the ocean and they'll float for the rest of their lives. Like, okay, like that's what a lot of people are wearing spiritually. It's like, I will walk on water after I put on my full body scuba suit. It's like, that's not faith. And you will not live in faith if you're not able to persevere through pain and fear. Can't do it. Can't do it. If you're not able to move through fear, you're not going to be able to live in faith. If you are not able to move through pain, you're not going to be able to live in faith. So it's not the main point of this message, but it's a big part of this message. Some of you, Jesus has been saying to you, get out of the boat. I've got a big plan for your life, but I need you to get out of the boat. And you are white knuckling the side. Some of you got one leg hanging over, dragging in the water. Some of you are like the kid at the pool who like your whole body's in the water, but you're hanging on to the boat with all you can. What is Jesus calling you to do that you're saying? But what if it doesn't work? 
you might sink, you won't drown, and your faith will be a lot stronger. Get out of the boat. A couple weeks ago, we ended the message with a quote from a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott, legendary, influential 20th century missionary to the Aka Indian tribe. Today, I want to introduce you to another missionary. His name is William Carey. He's called the father of modern missions. He was born in England 16 years before we signed the Declaration of Independence. He died 25 years, 26 years before the Civil War started. So he's an older guy. At that time, the Church of England, the official churches of the world, had decided that missions was not something that the local church was responsible for, that churches didn't need to go all over the world anymore. They just needed to kind of practice discipleship, but not missions. And William Carey, after carefully studying the Bible and visiting at that point some of the farthest parts of the British Empire, very specifically India, said, no, the church is responsible to go tell the world about Jesus. And he traveled around the churches of England, preaching a message saying, I need some people to get out of the boat because we got to reach the world. And he had a legendary sermon on Isaiah chapter 54, verses 2 and 3, where he would, as he would preach this sermon, hammer home this point that I'm going to throw on the screen. Might be another one that you want to take a picture of. He would tell churches all over England, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. We are the church of Jesus. We are kingdom citizens. We expect God to do unbelievable things. And we attempt unbelievable things. We live on the outside of the boat, not the inside of the boat. Amen? He would start the, the first and the largest and most influential missions agency in the history of the world by recruiting young men and women from British colleges to expect that God wanted to do great things through their attempts and their faith to follow what Jesus was calling them to do. What has God been saying to you in your life that this message has not clarified, it's just reminded you of? Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. In the spring of 2009, I was taking a student in my youth ministry to visit Liberty University. He was trying to figure out where he wanted to go to school after his senior year. And Pastor Jonathan Falwell, who was the son of the president of the school when I went to Liberty, one of my mentors, Dr. Jerry Falwell, was speaking. It was the last convocation of the year. And he told the student body, he said, my dad would want me to ask you this question before you go home for the summer. It's the question Dr. Falwell would start and end every school year with. And here's the question. He would ask the students, what would you attempt for God if you knew it couldn't fail? What would you attempt for God if you knew there was no chance it would fail? And he would say, think about that. Literally, as he said, what would you attempt for God if you knew it wouldn't fail? I thought, I would start the church that's in my heart. That's literally like, because the question was phrased that way, what would you attempt for God if you knew it wouldn't fail? I thought, I'd start the church that's in my heart. But I had not told anyone I was even thinking about starting a church at that point. I was there to have him help me find a job pastoring a church somewhere. And when we had lunch afterwards, me, the student, and Pastor Jonathan... He said, what do you want to do? I kind of laid out my heart's vision. This is the church that I'm looking for. Could you help me get hired somewhere in the Greater Liberty Network? He said, it sounds like to me, like the church is in your heart. You just need to start it. I was like, oh, no, God would never want me to do that. Like that is like, nope, he's not calling me to start a church. And I had this faith moment. And it would take me 18 months from that conversation to say yes to planning a church and another year to actually start the church. 
And as Danielle and I often discuss, they were the 30th hardest months of our life. And as I look back now, here's what I know. Jesus was 10 feet away the entire time. He's just outside the boat saying, coming? You coming? You coming? And I did not have the faith to get out of the boat and walk. So I paid with a storm of correction for nearly three years. What's God calling you to today that you'd do if you were just sure it wouldn't fail? That if you could lock in on Jesus and walk towards him, you might experience the miraculous. As we close in prayer today, we're going to do something we don't do often. I'd like to pray over two specific groups of people. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, make you feel vulnerable in any way. But as we get ready to close in just a second, I'm going to pray. If you don't know who Jesus is, and this is the first time you've heard the gospel, God knows you, loves you, is moving towards you, inviting you into relationship, we'll give you a chance to say yes to Jesus and begin your faith journey. But if you're in here today, and if you were to be really honest, you would say, I've adjusted to the depth of pain, but the length of it, man, I'm almost ready to quit. I'm planning to quit. I want to pray for you in just a minute. And if you're here today and you say, I know God has called me to something, and I have just been too afraid to step out, I want to pray for you too. And just ask God to give you the nudge that you need. So would you bow your heads as we close together today? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room, but hearts are open. If you're here today and you've never heard the gospel, that God knows you, created you, loves you, and is moving towards you and has invited you into relationship with him, if you will move towards him and commit and trust your life to him and walk with him, that's the clearest, best news I can ever give you. And if God brought you here today because he's been drawing your heart, so you can connect to him and you want to do that, then today by faith, would you open your heart and receive him? You can do that through prayer. You say, Christian, what does that look like? What do I even say? I'll say a prayer. You can pray after me. It's not the words of my prayer or your prayer. It's just really the attitude of your heart to receive this invitation to follow Jesus that matters most. Just pray something like this, not out loud, but just from your heart to God. Just say, God, I recognize you're moving towards me. Just repeat it after me. God, I recognize you're moving towards me. And I receive your invitation to move towards you. God, today by faith, which means I do not understand it all, but I need it all. Today I choose Jesus. I ask that you would forgive my sin that has separated me from you. I ask that you would clean up my past all the things I'm ashamed of. I ask that you would heal the hurts that have been inflicted on me by others. And I ask that you would lead me in my future so that I never have to walk alone. God, today by faith, I choose to follow Jesus. I choose to become a Christian. Thank you for loving me, for forgiving me, for saving me, for being willing to lead If you just prayed that prayer with me in just a second, I'll let you know how you can let us know so we can come alongside you and begin to help spiritually with anything that you might need. But Christians, heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed all over the room. Christians, man, if God has spoken to you today, it'd be my honor to pray for you. If you say, Christian, I need a longer faith, 
I've adapted to the depth of pain, but the length of it is nearly unbearable. I need for God to stretch out my faith a little longer. I don't want to quit. Would you just stand right where you are? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Please, nobody looking around. If you say, the pain has been long and I feel like quitting, just stand right now all over the house. I'm just going to pray for you. Just right where you are, stand all over the house. Before I pray for these, heads still bowed, eyes still closed. If there's anybody in here who says, I know God is calling me to something that I simply am afraid to pursue. Christian, pray for me to have more faith. Would you stand right where you are? I know God, I'm positive God is calling me to something that I'm afraid to pursue. Pray that I'll have more faith. Just stand right where you are all over the auditorium. Just stand and stay standing until I finish praying for you, please. God, I pray for these men, these women, these children, these students who are standing now. You know the exact reason they're standing because their whole life you've been moving towards them for relationship and redemption. God, I pray for those who are worn out after the last two and a half years that we've all lived through, or maybe for them it's just been the longest two months of their life. And Lord, they don't want to have no faith. They just don't know if they can have tomorrow's faith. I pray, Jesus, you'll bless them with a double portion of endurance and perseverance so that they will not grow tired and quit. But God, lengthen their faith so they can make it all the way to Jesus in their journey and let them keep their eyes focused on you, not their circumstances. And God, for those who stood because they've already been called to attempt great things for you and they just don't know how to bridge that gap. Jesus, fix their gaze on your strength and hold their eyes as they walk on water towards you. I pray, Lord, not just for the people, but I pray for the projects and the purpose that you are calling them to. Because, Lord, when a generation expects great things from you and attempts great things from you, the world benefits by knowing who Jesus is. So, God, be with these wrestling in faith and give them the strength to start one step at a time moving out of the boat. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room. I'd like to invite the rest of you to stand with those who are already standing. We're getting ready to worship with our last worship song. I want to invite our spiritual care team down to the front of the stage as we close in prayer today if you're here and you need longer faith and you want to tell somebody specifically what it is come to one of our spiritual care team members today and say hey Christian pray for me here's exactly what's going on if you've got a call on your heart or on your life that you need faith to pursue we'd love you to come pray with someone today heads are bowed and eyes are closed but listen real carefully we've changed the way we're going to provide some spiritual care today. We not only have people at the front, we have people standing in front of almost every section and people lining the back walls. We know it's intimidating to come all the way down front. So if you want someone to pray for you, they might only be two or three steps away. We would love to pray for you and minister to you. God, thank you that Jesus calls us out of the boat. Thank you that he moves towards us before we even know we need to move towards him. Thank you for your invitation to come near you and your rescue when we need it most. Thank you, Lord, that when we're in the fire, we're not alone. Thank you that when we're in the water, you'll hold back the sea. 
And God, as we worship you, Lord, I pray that it would be from a recognition that you're always there. You're always moving. You're always calling. A focus on the Savior. That's our prayer today. And we ask it in Jesus' name as we worship. Amen.